Hello and welcome to today's webinar. Uh, my name is Laura Safty. I'm joined by Tom Goldstein and Sarah Harrington. Um, this is going to be our discussion for the next hour around the 2020 Supreme Court term. Um, I'm very excited to welcome you to today's discussion. My name is Laura Safty, and for the next hour we'll be speaking with two giants in Supreme Court litigation. Tom Goldstein and Sarah Harrington, attorneys with the Russell and Goldstein Law Firm and authors for SCOTUS Blog. Because we have uh, approximating 1,000 people on the line, we can't have two-way audio, so I'll ask that you tweet any questions that you have for Tom and Sarah to at Casetext. Um, note our Twitter handle at the bottom of the screen. Um, we'll be monitoring these questions and we'll answer as many as we can. Uh, if you're not on Twitter, no fear, you can email your questions to support at Casetext.com and we'll try to get to them that way. Um, I'm going to take just a minute to introduce our panelists, though I'm sure most of you are very familiar with their work. Um, Tom Goldstein has served as counsel to a party in well over 100 merits cases at the court and has been counsel on more successful petitions for cert over the past decade than any other lawyer in private practice. Tom is, of course, the founder and publisher of SCOTUS Blog, which we uh, appreciate for their incredibly valuable commentary and analysis of Supreme Court decisions. Thank you, guys. Uh, Sarah Harrington has argued 20 cases in the Supreme Court and has served as counsel on dozens of others. She's handled a wide range of topics before the court, including bankruptcy, constitutional law, criminal law, tax law, preemption, trademark, civil procedure, environmental law, and federal statutory questions. Both Tom and Sarah are instructors in the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Harvard Law School, and both of them make me, uh, and I'm sure very, uh, many others on the line, uh, introspective about one's own contribution to the legal community, given um, their incredible work uh, over the last few decades. So please join me in welcoming Tom and Sarah to this very important conversation. So I think uh, we have a couple, a few cases that we're going to talk about today, uh, all pending before the court, and I think we're going to start on the DACA case. Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the DACA case, um, and just sort of like in the broadest terms to set up the term, uh, this is the first full term where we have these nine justices. Justice Kavanaugh joined the bench um, when the term was in session last year. Um, and Justice Gorsuch the year before that. So uh, there was some, we talked about this in our case text webinar, but there was some effort last term by the court to have what some people thought was a sort of boring, kind of low key term. They pushed off a bunch of cases. Um, well, of course, that strategy resulted in um, more of a, a higher key term this year. So there are some pretty big and interesting cases to talk about. The first case we're going to talk about is the DACA case. Um, so DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. It's a program that was put in place by the Obama administration in 2012. Um, and what it does is it is a sort of categorical program that tells a category of people who are in the country um, illegally, who are undocumented, that they um, will not be removed from the country for a certain period of time. So under the DACA program, it's um, a two-year period of time that's renewable. And the category of people to which DACA applies is people who were brought to this country undocumented as children. Um, so people, um, the thought was these are people who had no say in their arriving there without authorization. Uh, and um, and there are certain restrictions on in that group who can be uh, who's entitled to the DACA relief. So people have to have a high school diploma or have joined the military. They have to submit to a background check. Um, they get fingerprinted. All this sort of stuff. So people who um, qualify for DACA can apply for DACA protection. And the protection says again, we will not remove you for a couple of years. Gives people authorization to work. Allows them to get driver's licenses. Allows them to get health insurance. All kinds of good things. So this is a program put in place in 2012. Almost a million people, I think 800,000 or more people, 
uh, took advantage of the program. So it's a huge, huge number of people who, whose lives are at stake here. Um, now, existing regulations before the DACA program was put in place did allow the executive branch to make these sort of deferral of removal decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. So with any particular person, they could say, well, we understand that you're undocumented, but we are going to let you know that we're not going to remove you and we'll give you work authorization and such. Um, but this is different because it is a sort of categorical judgment about um, doing that for a whole um, group of people. Uh, so that was in 2012 that it was put in place and it was and it was challenged and there were lots of litigation about it. Uh, it was still in place when the administration changed in 2017. When the Trump administration came in, they announced that they were going to get rid of DACA. And the reason they gave was they said, we think it's illegal. We think that federal law does not authorize the executive branch to make this sort of categorical determination about deferred removal. We can only do it on a case-by-case -case basis, so we're getting rid of it. So that decision was then challenged in at least three different lawsuits. Uh, there was one in DC, one in the Ninth Circuit, I think the other one was in the Second Circuit eventually. Um, and uh, in the District of Columbia case, while it was in the district court, the executive branch was given an opportunity to what they call supplement the record to give additional reasons why they decided to get rid of DACA. Um, because the main reason they'd given was we think it was illegal. So they gave some other reasons like, well, we don't want to endure the litigation risk. We think it will be challenged and struck down as illegal. And it's easier for us to do sort of an orderly wind down rather than wait for a court to tell us to get rid of it. They said, we think it's a decision that Congress should make, not something that an agency should make through rulemaking. And they said, and we want to continue to send a strong message that illegal border crossings are bad. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, and, and when they're talking about the litigation risk, they make a reference to a case that happened in the Obama administration um, about a related program called DAPA, which I'll see if I can get it right, Deferred Action for Parents of Americans, I think is what it stands for. And it applies to people who um, are undocumented in the country, but have our parents of um, children who are Americans because the children were born here. Uh, and that program was challenged, that in, a, in an extension of DACA was challenged in the Obama administration in a case called Texas versus United States. Um, DAPA was struck down, it went to the Supreme Court, struck down in the Fifth Circuit, went to the Supreme Court and the court tied 4-4. Um, so uh, they, they sort of pointed to, this administration pointed to that case and said, well, we don't wanna have to deal with that with DACA, it creates a kind of mess. Uh, and so instead of enduring the litigation risk, we're just gonna wind it down. So in the case, I mentioned that there were three challenges to the decision to, to end DACA. Uh, in the case that was in the Ninth Circuit, the court said, well, we're not going to consider these new reasons that you're giving for getting rid of it because it, what we, we view them as post hoc rationalizations. The only reason you gave in support of your decision to end DACA was that you think it's illegal. So that's what we're going to look at. Um, and so uh, meanwhile, there were nationwide injunctions in place. and so. The Solicitor General, as has been his habit in this administration at least, went directly to the Supreme Court before there was a decision in the Ninth Circuit case in something called cert before judgment, where they asked the Supreme Court to step in before there was actually a Court of Appeals decision to rule on. While that petition was pending, the Ninth Circuit did rule, so it ended up being cert after judgment. Uh, and, and so that, that case was teed up about a year ago, uh, ready for the court to decide whether to hear the case or not. And everyone was waiting. And then they waited and waited and waited. And the court basically just sat on the case, all the DACA cases for months. And at the end of the term, they decided to grant the cases and hear them this term. And so there was a lot of speculation about what is going on there. You know, sometimes they'll 
they'll sit on the case, they call it holding the case, or they'll relist the case where they consider it at one conference, and then they kick it off to the next conference and the next one. And um, sometimes we're waiting for another case to catch up or waiting for something else to happen. Um, here, even after all the cases had caught up with each other, they just sort of sat on it for a while. Um, and I think the widespread, the widespread speculation is that they were hoping that Congress and the president would reach some kind of uh, political solution to this problem, would um, find a legislative way to deal. And I should mention the DACA um, recipients are also referred to as the dreamers. And so the dreamers are sort of viewed as a politically popular group um, in many circles. Uh, and there was a hope, I think, among members of the court that Congress and the president would get together and figure out how to help the dreamers. Well, as we all know, it didn't happen. So the court granted cert. Um, and it was argued earlier this term. And so there are basically two questions presented. The first is whether whether the administration's decision to get rid of DACA is even reviewable in the courts at all. So um, in, in some ways, this case is really an administrative case, administrative law case, more than it is an immigration law case. Um, there's a statute called the Administrative Procedure Act, which governs how one challenges federal agency action. Um, so stay with me here. Wake up, everybody. <laughs> it's actually, um, it can be pretty interesting. It's, it's something that government lawyers um, have a lot of experience with. Um, but in the APA, it says that um, things that are committed to agency discretion by law are not reviewable by the courts. That basically, when there is no law that can be applied that would tell you whether the exercise of discretion was good or bad, that courts, it's just not their job to step in and make their own sort of policy judgment about what the, what the executive branch should have done. And so the executive branch here says, well, what the decision whether to enforce the immigration laws and against whom <clears throat> is a sort of classic prosecutorial discretion decision. That's something that's fully committed to agency discretion by law, and there's just nothing. There's just nothing for the courts to do here. There's no law for them to apply to review whether our decision was good or bad. The challengers come back and say, "Well, you said you got rid of it because it was illegal. That there clearly is law to apply in determining whether that is a valid justification or not a justification." What they say, the challengers say, is you didn't, you know, by the terms of your own decision making, you didn't exercise any discretion at all. You just did what you thought was required by the law. Uh, now the government comes back and says, well, you shouldn't look at the reasons we gave. You should look at the type of decision when you're determining whether it's reviewable. Uh, and so there's lots of back and forth about whether whether there's really anything for the court to do here or for any of the lower courts to have done. And the second question is whether is if it's reviewable, whether uh, the whether the executive branch um, sort of pulled it back correctly. Um, I think most people involved in the case or watching the case would say um, it is probably, you know, it is correct that the executive branch has the authority to end the DACA program. If the Obama administration could put it in place, the Trump administration can take it back. It's just a question of whether they did it correctly. The APA imposes lots of um, sort of procedural requirements. There's a real emphasis on process um, and, and explaining reasons. You have to give a reasoned explanation. So the challengers say, well, they didn't give a reasoned explanation. They didn't take into account the reliance interests that the dreamers have. Um, they, you know, and they sort of changed their lives and they've come forward in reliance on the promises made under the DACA program. Um, they say you shouldn't sort of take account of these post hoc rationalizations. These are all the legal arguments in the case. Um, there's sort of, um, you know, an overlay of uh, an interesting issue in the case, which is, um, as I mentioned, the dreamers are fairly popular uh, in many political circles. Um, and it is viewed as sort of politically unpopular to say, and even the president, President Trump, while 
ending the program has said, I'm going to help the dreamers. The dreamers are great. We love the dreamers. And so it is viewed as sort of politically unpopular to say, like, eh, we just don't care. And we just are going to be um, strict about it and uh, let the chips fall where they may. Um, and there's some, um, this has been a little bit of a theme at the Supreme Court in the last couple of years about um, whether the executive branch is sort of stepping up and taking political, political accountability for some of the choices it's making. We saw this issue sort of come up in the census case last year where uh, ultimately the chief justice writing for a majority of the court said, well, you have the authority to add this question to the census, but you have to be honest about why you're doing it and you weren't, and so you can't do it here. Um, so there's a little bit of a little bit of synergy with that, a little bit of the same flavor of people sort of um, thinking, well, if the reason is if you're getting rid of DACA just because you don't like it, then you should just say we don't like it. And in fact, at the oral argument, Justice Ginsburg asked essentially that question. She said, you know, if, if you don't like it, that's one thing, but um, there may or may not be political consequences to that, and you should have to step forward um, and sort of own your decision. And the Solicitor General of the United States, Noel Francisco, said, I quote, we own this. Um, and so I think, you know, the message had been received that they need to sort of step up and, um, and take responsibility for the consequences. Uh, I think most people who were at the argument or have um, read about it um, came away with this, with saying that the government is likely to prevail in this case, possibly on the reviewability question, but um, we'll have to wait and see. Probably near the end of June, we'll find out. Very interesting. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, obviously this is an unusual case because everyone seems to agree that the administration just could end DACA if it wanted to. The arguments are really about the process under which the decision was made. Um, but one thing that struck me, if the justices elect to send this case back for a more robust explanation for the decision from the secretary of DHS, and they get exactly what they asked for, an explanation that unilaterally asserts more reason, does this end any differently than last year's census case? Well, I don't end differently, but you know, the one thing about the census case is that there was a hard um, deadline on they could add the question. And so uh, if that litigation had happened a year earlier, they could have sent it back and the Census Bureau could have had a more robust process and explained the reasons um, in a more forthright way and still had time to add the question. But because of the way it all went down and when they had to put the um, the questionnaire into the field, um, they couldn't do it. In this case, um, you know, depending on what happens in the election, I suppose there is time for them to, um, to, to do that. You know, I would say they have, they could have done that all along while this case was pending, right? There's nothing keeping the administration from creating a new record, a new decision um, to, to rescind DACA with a more robust explanation for why they're doing it um, and query why they haven't done it. I don't know. Um, but I think that would have probably mooted this litigation, created a new set of litigation. Understood. That that does make a lot of sense. Obviously, the political context is pretty important. Um, okay, we have a bunch of really interesting cases to discuss, so I might move us on to the next one. Um, the next case, of course, uh, involves Title VII and whether its protections protect uh, gay and lesbian employees. Uh, is Tom, are you taking this one? I am indeed. Thanks so okay. much. This is actually a set of three different cases that have been uh, effectively consolidated by the court, although there are two different kinds of cases and those were argued separately. And they involve Title VII, which is, of course, the principal federal statute barring employment discrimination. 
And that statute prohibits discrimination where it applies because of sex. And this is, these cases involve the question of whether that protection applies to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation for gay and lesbians, and also to discrimination on the basis of a transgender status and gender identity. So this is a really important case, as almost every case is that involves a hot button issue these days, uh, that on the question of what does it mean for the court and the direction of its jurisprudence with Justice Kennedy's departure from the court. Because Justice Kennedy, of course, was probably the driving force, at least among the more conservative justices, uh, behind the recognition of greater legal protection for gays and lesbians, uh, the entire LGBTQ community. He was a hero to them. Uh, and when he left the court, and now we have uh, Justice Kavanaugh on the court, whether it is that the court's direction on these legal questions will change. Now, of course, this is not the same legal question by any means as was whether to recognize a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, for example. But the level of sympathy and empathy on the court towards the status of these individuals and the question of whether the law should protect them is a kind of recurring question through the cases and through you know a bunch of uh, legal questions that are making their way through the courts. So two of the cases involve gay employees, one involves a transgender employee, and uh, the lower courts originally in their earliest understandings of what Title VII meant had held that the prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sex did not reach uh, this kind of discrimination. And the kind of root sense behind that is that in 1964, it's almost when Title VII was passed, it's almost unimaginable that the Supreme Court, excuse me, that the Congress would have envisioned the statute applying in these circumstances because there was a lot more hostility uh, in the country and society and politics uh, towards gay and lesbian and transgender individuals. There was kind of no real sense that the law would prohibit this kind of discrimination. The American Psychological Association at the time described homosexuality as effectively a mental illness. I mean, the country and uh, our society have come a great, 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 great uh, deal in the direction of understanding that this is a form of discrimination that is uh, regrettable and uh, ought in many instances to be prohibited by law. But when you think about what Congress was thinking in 1964, it is hard to uh, imagine that there was a majority in the court, and I, I don't think anybody really argues that, uh, that there was a majority in Congress uh, for extending the protections of Title VII this far. On the other hand, the text of Title VII is written quite broadly, and that has been very important to the Supreme Court in other contexts in which it has recognized uh, discrimination, uh, forms of discrimination that might not well have been recognized by Congress in 1964 as covered by the statute, because just the phrase, because of sex, is quite copious, and it's not that hard to, you know, analogize or to fit the claims of discrimination in this case, in these cases, uh, within the statutes. So there are a couple of debates within the Supreme Court about this question. One is really which is the far more important? Is it the text of the statute or is 
all of statutory construction, ultimately an attempt to figure out, you know, what is it that Congress would have had in mind originally when it adopted the statute. And this parallels, of course, debates about whether you have a living constitution. It's almost a question of whether you have a living statute on some level. Did Congress write the law broadly enough so that it expected the courts to kind of adapt to social understandings and norms uh, and appreciations for what our different kinds of discrimination are? Or instead, uh, do you uh, have a much more purposive sense of statutory construction that says, I cannot imagine that Congress ever intended uh, the law to apply here? Um, and very often, the kind of ideological sense of those sorts of things is switched. Uh, very often, you have the more conservative justices who are you know, much, much, much more strict textualists. But here, at the oral argument, at the least, it seemed that they were much more sympathetic to the idea that this is not what Congress would have intended. And the conservatives tend to believe that you know the implications of their statutory construction is, is you know to be uh, not really their concern that the statutory text is the principal concern, uh, but in this case in the oral argument there was concern among the conservatives that it would be you know would create an enormous amount of social upheaval were you to extend Title VII this far. Um, the pivot justice in the case seemed to be Justice Gorsuch, who expressed some sympathy with the arguments of both sides, including the idea that because of sex is so broad a term that it would encompass these forms of employment discrimination. On the other hand, he did make the point about social upheaval. Uh, and I think in general, the conservatives tend to believe that this is something that if you want to have covered by law, then you need to go and get specific legislation, because that's true in certain states. Some states have extended their uh, civil rights laws uh, to this context. There have been a variety of attempts to extend Title VII expressly to this context, but they haven't passed. Uh, the, you know, one of the other interesting features of the case is that the, the government's position has shifted to some extent. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which enforces uh, a variety of civil rights laws on behalf of the federal government originally took the position in some of this litigation that Title VII does apply here, but they, the Trump administration took a very, very, very strong view to the contrary. And in the end, the administration's position and the Solicitor General's position on behalf of the United States was that the statutes don't apply. Uh, what happens uh, depending on what on who wins? Well, a lot would if the employees lose here and the employers prevail in both sets of cases, uh, then the action turns to Congress and to state legislatures, obviously. And there is a pretty strong sense that the country uh, has moved in the direction of you know finding these forms of discrimination odious. On the other hand, there are you know there's a real genuine sense, and even Justice Kennedy had this view, that there are religious and moral objections that, you know, ought to be accounted for. This is particularly true from with respect to organizations that have a religious footing, even businesses that have a religious footing. Justice Kennedy really strongly believed that you shouldn't be kind of uh, deeming the uh, employers in these contexts, the individuals in these contexts that have their views about same-sex couples as being kind of, you know, essentially bad people, but you ought, everybody ought to try and respect uh, other people's opinions. 
Uh, if the employees win, well, I think that that's likely to continue the momentum in the country towards recognizing greater protection for the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, for a conservative Supreme Court to step in on their side, uh, to, you know, uh, read the statutes very broadly to an opinion in their favor would really recognize this form of discrimination as one that is troubling and ought to be prohibited. Um, and so that community, I think, would really, really celebrate such a decision. In the end, despite Justice Gorsuch's uh, textualism, I think the you know, the betting odds here are that the employers win. It would be pretty remarkable for, remarkable for the Roberts Court, which is an extremely conservative one, albeit with only five justice majority, uh, to rule in favor of the employees in, in these cases. But Justice Gorsuch's interest in the textual argument is certainly one that makes it, you know, close enough to be uh, a very, very real fight, and we'll have to see as we get closer to June. Thank you. This is obviously critically important to a lot of people. You you alluded to this, but just to ask it directly, you know, it's not every day that the politically progressive position calls for strict interpretation and the politically conservative position calls for consulting legislative history. Um, do you think that dynamic might impact the court's decision at all? Yeah, and I think, by the way, that the conservatives would probably not characterize it as so much as looking at legislative history. That objection, you know, one very famously made by Justice Scalia, tends to focus a little bit more on whether you're like reading committee reports or floor statements. Their argument is, you know, more concretely like, come on, no one actually <laughs> believes that this is what Congress had in mind. You don't have to read a committee report. You don't have to do anything. A hundred out of a hundred people would believe that, you know, Congress, this was not what the statute is directed at. So I think that the, the, there nonetheless is a debate between purposivism, that is, you know, what is the statute after, and strict textualism. Uh, and I do think probably that is Justice Gorsuch's concern, um, that, you know, the strict textualist view is Congress wrote a broad statute. If it wants to write a narrow one, it, narrow one it can. In truth, like all difficult statutory construction questions, you can probably find what you need to in the statute. Uh, you don't have to assume, you know, one, uh, you know, that, that there's you know, only one way to read the statute. Uh, and so both sides are able to draw on enough textual textual arguments that they can they can write a persuasive opinion one way or the other. Um, so I do think it's it's causing Justice Gorsuch to at least pause on the question. The uh, more progressive members of the Supreme Court, I think, have no difficulty finding this protection in the, the broad language of because of sex. Uh, it's just a question of whether they can find one colleague uh, on the right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we have a question from one of our listeners, Christine Kidd. How would inclusion of transgender status under sex affect bona fide occupational qualification application? Um, and she makes reference to the arguments in the Harris funeral home case. Sure, and so Harris Funeral Home is a transgender status case. So their Title VII does have a defense for bona fide occupational uh, qualifications, so that if an employer has uh, something that, for example, if an employer has a rule about how much an employee has to carry in terms of weight, and that ultimately has a discriminatory effect against women, then the employer can attempt to prove that that's a real qualification for the job. The job really, really, really needs it. It is pretty hard, I think, to sketch out how, if you believe that Title VII applies to discrimination on the basis of uh, gender, gender identity, that there is a 
real bona fide reason for if uh, you know an individual wants to identify as a woman to say no I am going to I think it's you know my my business requires that you present as a male uh, you can imagine certain circumstances the you know the funeral home here makes the argument that in the sensitive context of funerals uh, it's essential that people present in their, you know, uh, birth identity. But I, I, I think it would be very hard. I think that um, if the court decides that this discrimination is prohibited, it would be difficult to see many employers prevailing on the idea that it's a, a bona fide uh, qualification for the job to present uh, at your, as your birth identity. So Pam Carlin's opening statement argued that if a male employee is terminated for dating a man, while well, a female employee would not be terminated for dating a man, that's discrimination because of sex under the statute. Some critics say, no opinion here, but some critics say that that's the wrong comparison, that you actually can't treat both gender and sexual orientation as variables. You have to hold the sexual orientation constant and compare a gay man being terminated to a gay woman being terminated. And the you know argument being that if they're equally discriminated against, then it's not discrimination under Title VII. Um, is there a response to that position that doesn't undermine the employee's case, kind of independent of the fact that we're dealing with a conservative court? Well, I do think that there's you know, no necessary way of reading it. I will say my own personal view is that to say, well, we would, you know, we would terminate a man for dating a man or a woman for dating a woman does seem to align what it is that you really would think Congress is concerned about here. Uh, even in, you know, if one accepts the broad language of Title VII and you think about the kinds of things that would concern Congress, if you believe that Congress may well be concerned about sexual orientation discrimination, to just say, you know, we're going to uh, say so long as you discriminate against all homosexuals, you know, so long as you're discriminating against gays and lesbians, then it's okay. On the other hand, you know, you can, you can make the other comparison and say, well, we're, we're treating, you know, individuals of both sexes the same. So, you know, I don't think that there's any definitive answer to that question, uh, you know, one way or the other. All right. Thank you. Why don't we move on to the next case? I think we're going to talk next about New York City's ban on transporting guns. Yep, so I'm going to chat with you about that. That's a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus New York, um, a case that started as a Second Amendment case and turned into a mootness case, which I'll explain. Um, so the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court has told us, protects the right to pe for people to have a handgun at home for self-defense purposes. The Supreme Court has also told us that the prohibitions in the Second Amendment apply to state and local governments. And that's sort of all they've told us, and they haven't said about it for about a decade. So the court granted cert in this case, and it was the first time they taken a Second Amendment case for a long time. This case involves a New York City ban on transferring um, guns, even licensed and unloaded guns, um, outside the city limits. Um, and so the plaintiff organization filed suit seeking declaratory and injunctive relief that will become important later, um, and um, saying that uh, we should be able to take our guns to our second homes that are outside the city limits. We want to be able to take our guns to the Hamptons or wherever. Um, and also we should be able to take our guns to gun ranges that are outside the city limits, you know, in White Plains or I don't know, I don't live in New York, but something like that. 
so uh, the plaintiff group lost in the district court and the court of appeals and sought cert. The Supreme Court granted cert about a year ago. Um, while the briefing was happening over the summer, New York City adopted a new ordinance saying, uh, well, okay, you can take um, your guns uh, to your second homes and you, and you can take your guns to shooting ranges outside the city. So this, the case is moot, you've gotten all you want. Um, around the same time, the New York State Legislature passed a law saying you can take your gun um, from your home to anywhere else where you can lawfully possess the gun. So, um, so even broader than the new law that New York City, or even less restrictive, I guess I should say, than the than the new law that New York City had adopted, and that state law would preempt the city's law would be more uh, more restrictive. Um, and so, New York came in and said the case is moot. Uh, the case, you know. The Supreme Court should dismiss cert. And um, although it is true that the Supreme Court is not inclined to rule on moot issues, it also does not appreciate when parties kind of mess around with its jurisdiction. And so uh, it does not it does not respond kindly when a, a, a party that won in the Court of Appeals waits until cert is granted before it sort of moots out the case in the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court said, um, thank you very much for your suggestion. Uh, we are not going to get rid of the case, uh, but we direct the parties to brief and be prepared to discuss the oral argument, the issue of mootness. Uh, and so that's what the parties did. And so um, the uh, state, the city rather, gave the arguments I've just um, suggested. Um, the challenger, who's represented by Paul Clement, former Solicitor General, said, this is not moot. You know, suppose we're driving to our house in the Hamptons and we need to stop for gas or for snacks or to use the restroom. Uh, you know, we don't have that's not covered by the city's ordinance. It's uh, not covered by the state's new law. We could be arrested there. Um, they they said also it's not moot because the city has not disclaimed the idea that the Second Amendment um, allows them to regulate our transportation of firearms between places where we can lawfully possess them. Uh, and they said and, and also there there may be future negative consequences to us in seeking future licenses to. To possess or to carry guns um, based on um, previous violations of the law that, that now has been repealed, um, and so so there's a there's a big debate about mootness. Um, interestingly enough, the Solicitor General of the United States is not a party to the case, but as they do in many many cases, they filed a brief of Amicus Curiae, uh, and they participated in the argument. Now their brief on uh, the Amicus Curiae supported supported the challengers on the merits of the Second Amendment question, but did not address mootness. They later, in the lead up to the oral argument, filed a letter with the court saying, well, we thought about it and now we agree with the challengers that it is not moot and we will be prepared to address that issue at the oral argument. The court said, thank you very much. Please submit a letter brief um, in the next four hours by the end of the day. Unusual, I've never seen that happen before. But they did and they said, well, we think it's not moot because principally because the plaintiffs could add a claim for damages. I mentioned earlier that the, the suit was just for prospective and injunctive relief. They were not seeking damages. The Solicitor General said, well, maybe someday, you know, they could they could add a claim for damages to this case. Um, that's unusual. That's an un very unusual position for the Solicitor General to take um, the sort of the United States is known as not thinking anyone ever has standing. The joke is sort of, you know, they think a case, if they think a suit against the government is unright until it is loose. They just have very like robust views of non-justiciability. So interesting for them to sort of say, well, you could always just add a damages claim and that makes the current case, which does not include a damages claim, not moot. So that was interesting. 
Um, so at the oral arguments, uh, I would say 90 to 95% of the questions were about mootness. That was really where the action was. And um, the, the lawyer for New York City got up and said, I hereby represent and I this binds my client that we will there will be no negative consequences um, for the plaintiffs or their members in seeking licenses in the future based on or to anyone in, uh, based on pre previous violations. We can see that the state's less restrictive law preempts our more restrictive law. Um, you know, we think there's just nothing to see here. And they, um, and he got some questions from people like Justice Alito about, well, you know, what if, and, and he said, and we're not going to apply it against bathroom breaks and gas breaks and snack breaks on your way to the Hamptons. And he said, well, what if I'm driving somewhere and I decide to stop for a half a day or overnight at my mother-in-law's house? And, um, you know, that's not necessarily a place where I can possess again, but I'm on my way to my second home where I can. Um, is that covered? Um, and and the New, and New York's response was basically, that is a new issue that has not been a part of this case. And so if that's a concern of the plaintiff, the organization plaintiff, they should file a new suit and we can work that out in the new suit because uh, it's just not something that we should be sort of fleshing out and, and deciding here at the, at the podium. It's something that um, it just raises a new issue. And the fact that there could be a new suit with new issues about the new laws that govern doesn't mean that the old suit with old issues about the old law that's been replaced is not moot. Um, the Solicitor General got up again and said, well, they could add a damages claim. And uh, that, interestingly enough, Paul Clement on behalf of the plaintiff got up and said, like, we don't, you know, we're not relying on that. We aren't really planning to add a damages claim. We just think um, there could be all kinds of consequences because of past violations. And um, we think the, you know, the concerns we have about how the current regime would, um, could be enforced are still alive and maybe you want to remand, but there's no reason to sort of kick the case as moot. Um, so, you know, maybe there'll be a sort of separate opinion about some of the Second Amendment issues, but I think it's very likely the case is going to go, you know, go off on mootness grounds. Um, but we'll have to wait and see, as we say about every case. We'll find out by the end of June. Thank you. Um, so you'd mentioned that. Um, the gun owners argued that allowing the government to move the case uh, after the Supreme Court grants review just by invalidating the the law is is problematic. It would set bad precedent. But do you agree with that? Like, is that not just the democratic process working as intended? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. You know, it is. I think if, if a government sees the writing on the wall and thinks the law is going to be struck down as unconstitutional, it's perfectly fine for them to change the law. I think the view of the Supreme Court, and I haven't, this is just my opinion of their view. I haven't, um, you know, consulted them about it, but I think their view is like, if you're going to do that, you should do it before you grant cert. You know, we don't grant cert in that many cases. It's just sort of a manipulation of the docket to kind of roll the dice and see if you can stick with the law you think may be unconstitutional if we deny cert. And then once we grant cert and you see the writing on the wall, um, to do at that point. And so I think it's more of a timing issue. Now, ultimately, I don't think they're going to um, change the way they view the mootness question based on what they might view as strategic behavior by the parties. It may have affected whether they would decide it was moot at a conference in October as opposed to in an opinion in June. You know, uh, I think they, at that point, once they granted cert, they were going to make the parties go through their paces. Um, but I don't think it will, it would change how they view the actual, the merits of the mootness question. Do you think the fact that a request for damages is absent from any of the pleadings in the case um, will impact the efficacy of that argument? 
I mean, I think it has to, you know, uh, the plaintiff's lawyer didn't say, well, I guess maybe, he didn't disclaim ever wanting damages, but he basically said he didn't embrace the government's argument at all, which I thought was interesting. He just said, like, we haven't asked for them. We don't think we need them. Um, just wasn't willing to lean on that. And um, I think it's such a strange argument coming from the United States that I'm not sure it's going to get very much traction. It sort of seemed like more of an excuse to offer to keep the case alive than um, a, a really sort of well-reasoned um, opinion about why it isn't moot. Got it. Okay. Well, this one, this one will be interesting uh, for different reasons than we originally thought. Exactly. All right. Shall we uh, chat about the next case? I think we're going to talk about um, June Medical Services then. So I'm going to talk about this. This is the terms abortion case. And it's a huge deal, again, for reasons that are related to the ones that I mentioned for the Title VII cases. And that is, this is a case about what happens after Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy, uh, a few years ago, provided the fifth vote, along with the court's more progressive justices, to invalidate a Texas statute in a case called Whole Women's Health that uh, required that an abortion provider have admitting privileges in a hospital within 30 miles from where the abortion services are provided. And the Supreme Court applying standards that it had developed in the wake of Roe versus Wade that is more permissive of regulation than Roe versus Wade, but still, you know, uh, enforces the abortion right, uh, said that that statute had an undue burden on a woman's access uh, to an abortion procedure because it really would dramatically narrow the number of lawful abortion providers in the state of Texas in that case. So the idea, the nominal idea behind these statutes is that, gosh, if you are going to have a serious procedure like this one, then you want to make sure that you are getting the procedure from someone who is, you know, credentialed, has access to the right medical facilities and the like. And so, you know, requiring uh, admitting privileges is sensible. In truth, uh, most of the folks who advocated for these laws in around 2013, when they were adopted by a bunch of statutes, would say that this is an attempt to limit access to abortion, that that's a, you know, at least a very significant basis for the statutes. Uh, and the reason it does have that effect very often is that it can be very, very difficult for an abortion provider to get hospital admitting privileges, including because to get admitting privileges, you have to be, you know, demonstrate that you would make an economic contribution to the hospital and abortion providers aren't, you know, referring people for all other kinds of medical procedures in the way that your kind of ordinary family physician is. And the abortion rights groups say, look, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that this actually does improve uh, the performance of the procedure in any way. That, it, you know, whether you can admit someone to a hospital doesn't tell you anything about the individual's qualifications. If you think there are necessary qualifications, well, then let's deal with that as a, a regulation. Uh, it's on its own. And so the Supreme Court several years ago in that Texas case, Whole Women's Health, agreed with the challengers to the law. Uh, and struck it down. Now, there were, as I mentioned, a number of these statutes out there. Uh, one of them was from the state of Louisiana and a federal district judge looking at the Texas case and looking at essentially the identical restriction uh, for, uh, in Louisiana, the you know pretty difficult to distinguish uh, limitation and a requirement that you have admitting privileges in, enjoined the Louisiana statute. It went to the Fifth Circuit where the state got a very conservative 
panel majority, 2-1, uh, and the panel majority reversed. And it said, look, what happened in the Supreme Court in the Texas case was very much based on the circumstances of Texas and the access to abortion in Texas, and whether it is that it would, you know, very, very seriously limit the number of providers in Texas, and we don't have the same record in Louisiana. And these things are fact-bound. You actually have to inquire what the extent of the burden is on the woman. And the Fifth Circuit panel majority found that there wasn't an undue burden on access uh, to abortion. It was, of course, a dissent. And then there was an en banc petition, and it was, en banc review was denied nine to six. The plaintiffs in the case then went to the Supreme Court, which stayed the Fifth Circuit's ruling and allowed the district court's injunction of the Louisiana statute to go into effect. And the puzzle for the plaintiffs in the case was who was going to be their fifth vote, given that while it only takes four votes to grant review in a case, it does take a fifth to grant a stay. And the fifth vote in this case was provided by the Chief Justice, which is a very, very interesting development, given that the Chief Justice dissented in the original Texas case and would have allowed the original Texas statute to go into effect. But you can see what's going on here, and that is, this is a debate about whether this is really a question of stare decisis. Is this case just a reprise, a replay of the Texas case, or are there real differences? And if what's going on is that it's a replay of the Texas case, then the Chief Justice in kind of his institutional role, his desire to make sure that Supreme Court precedent gets followed, is going to be the kind of person who's going to be most concerned about allowing a decision like the Fifth Circuit's to go into effect, the, you know, of wanting there not to be kind of a wink and nod at Supreme Court precedent. But in truth, what's going on is just a change in the court's composition from Justice Kennedy, who, you know, was not a huge fan of Roe versus Wade, but uh, you know, in the end was willing to enforce the right and found this kind of regulation accepted. Now, there was a separate opinion also with respect to the saying that was from Justice Kavanaugh. And he kind of mapped out a middle ground, which is something that he's done in this species of cases, particularly when he was on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And he said, look, I don't know what the right answer is here because this law has not gone into effect. Uh, we need to build a record on what actually will happen to access to abortion services in Louisiana. I wouldn't join the statute in the absence of a real you know, record proving what that is, because there are significant interests uh, of, for both sides at stake. But so five to four, nonetheless, the court did uh, allow an injunction against the statute to go into effect. So what happens here? I think this is really a question of characterization. If the state can prove to the Chief Justice that, look, you know, these inquiries into undue burden, if that's going to be the legal standard going for, forward, do have to be undertaken with great precision. Or if they persuade him that this, you know, the Texas case really was very, very wrong, and this is a legitimate way to distinguish it, uh, then the state is likely to prevail. On the other hand, if the plaintiffs are able to make this out as a case in which the state of Louisiana and the Fifth Circuit majority are just attempting to flout Supreme Court precedent because they think they can get away with it because the composition of the court has changed. Well, then I think the chief is likely to say, you know, we, I may not like this precedent, but you don't have been justified overturning it. Uh, and I'm going to adhere to it, even if I don't agree with it. And that's a kind of, you know, a, a kind of uh, position that I think he would enjoy in some level uh, because it, you know, it, it does help to demonstrate that the court is not entirely political, that it doesn't shift with the political winds. I do think that the conservatives are really buoyed by the prospect of winning this case. President Trump, of course, 
took a very pro-life position in the run-up to the presidential election in 2016, promised to appoint justices to the court who would narrow or overrule Roe versus Wayne. We have Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. But, you know, this is their first real opportunity to speak to uh, that question and to the scope of Roe and, the, you know, the extent to which the court will adhere to Roe. Probably the betting money is that Justice Gorsuch <clears throat> is the one who is the more hostile to Roe as being an overreach and just inserting something, you know, policy preferences into the Constitution that aren't there. Justice Kavanaugh is, you know, probably thought to be more in the mold of Justice Kennedy of not wanting to read Roe expansively, certainly not to extend Roe, but not be inclined to overrule it, or at least not be inclined to overrule it with, in any kind of rush. I should say that there is a layer on top of this case, as there is in seemingly every case, a procedural one, uh, and it's one of standing. So the plaintiffs in the case are not women who sought uh, to have an abortion, but rather are the providers. And the, there is a fight in the briefing, although it hasn't gotten a huge amount of attention, whether or not the providers have the standing to advance the row right uh, on behalf of their putative uh, patients. Um, it seemed unlikely that the case would be resolved on that ground, that the lawsuit would be dismissed on the ground that the abortion providers don't have the standing to challenge the statute. Given that historically the doctor-patient relationship has been one that has been recognized as sufficient to give rise to standing to sue, but it is an off-ramp for the court. It could decide not to resolve it that way. If you ask kind of where I would bet the court will come out, I think in the end, uh, probably the state will end up winning. Uh, but it's extremely, extremely close. And the fact that the Chief Justice granted, uh, voted to grant a stay in the case has to be heartening uh, to abortion rights advocates. Thank you. Um, the standing issue, as, as you mentioned here at the end, isn't getting nearly as much attention as I, as I think perhaps it's due. Maybe it's because people perceive it as a long shot. But I mean, what would happen if the court suddenly undermined um, our longstanding understanding of the ability of medical providers to um, sue on behalf of, I guess in this case, you know, women who could in the future uh, desire to obtain an abortion or, or any other potential future, um, you know, individual who needs medical attention? Sure. Well, I mean, it wouldn't make the cases impossible. The court has, and one of the very, very, you know, the way these different doctrines interact is that you might well be concerned that if a woman who was seeking the procedure sought to bring such a claim, then uh, the case could be mooted because she would either have the procedure or would carry the child to term. The Supreme Court has a doctrine that's built specifically for that circumstance, that it's capable of repetition yet evading review. Uh, and so the cases wouldn't be mooted out. But for political reasons, for the pressure that can be brought, um, you know, for economic reasons and the like, uh, it's certainly much, much easier to find abortion providers that would have an institutional interest in bringing the cases. So I do think in the end that the abortion rights groups are organized enough that they would ultimately, ultimately be able to find plaintiffs, but it would throw another kind of material obstacle uh, in the way of the litigation going forward. I, you know, as you mentioned, it hasn't gotten a huge amount of attention and I would be, 
I would be surprised. The, there was a dissent in the whole women's health itself about this question that didn't get, you know, didn't get all four of the conservatives joining into it. Uh, and even, and it's probably pitched in the direction of uh, the chief justice who does have strong views about standing and limiting access to the courts by people who haven't been directly injured. Uh, but in the end, I think that uh, the court will reach the merits of the case. We actually just got another question from a viewer, Lee, who asked also on the standing question, why is standing here different than in the Texas case? Is it just that they decided to bring the argument this time and, and not previously? Well, it was, you know, it was played out in the Texas case. It's just, you know, take another run at it. Uh, it's a situation where you can end up having an individual justice agree with this argument, even if they don't necessarily agree with you on the merits. That might be what's going on with an attempt to get the chief justice. But in terms of fundamentals, no, nothing is different. The, um, you know, the this kind of argument has been raised intermittently in abortion cases, and you know, is is being raised again. Just as the court's view can evolve on the question of the scope of the row right, so too it can evolve on the question of standing. And so I think that, uh, not surprisingly, the advocates of the state statutes are going to just take every shot that they have at beating the litigation. So we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, finger to the wind, your best guess. Do you think Chief Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts' interest in upholding stare decisis and specifically, you know, overcoming this growing public perception of the court as, as merely a political body will prevail against his substantive position in whole women's health. If you were you were a betting man, if I if I were a betting man, and some say I am, uh, <laughs> the, I think that the we would you know I would bet on the state here, even though the the it would be quite unusual to vote to grant the stay, but then to uh, vote in favor of the position that was stayed. Nonetheless, I think that the chief, it's you know, entirely plausible to write an opinion that says, you know, there isn't yet a record, at the very least, is a kind of Justice Kavanaugh-ish opinion that says there isn't yet a record that demonstrates that there isn't access, sufficient access to abortion as a result of the uh, admitting privileges requirement. That means it's not an undue burden, at least at this point, and how the litigation has been framed. Uh, and then the Chief Justice doesn't, you know, the the while the left of the court undoubtedly will characterize this as just in the teeth of the whole women's health case, you can write an opinion that says it isn't. The court did this once uh, earlier in a, a, a pair of cases oh, spanning a few years after Justice O'Connor departed the court uh, involving another abortion procedure. So it, it abortion is so significant to the justices that they tend not to view themselves as boxed in a lot by precedent. One last question um, we have from viewer Christine Parker. So she said, didn't the state effectively waive the standing argument by not raising it in the lower courts? Standing is something you can't waive, essentially. And so it's true that the state was willing to litigate the case. But Article 3 of the Constitution requires there to be an actual case or controversy. And if you don't, if the court determines that it doesn't have somebody in front of it with standing to sue, there is no waiver. The court will deem it to be obligated, in fact, to determine whether it has a live case or controversy in front of it. Okay, so since we only have a few minutes left, I'm going to unilaterally say that we are going to save the CFPB case for session two. 
um, of this conversation, which will happen on February 20th, I will ask each of you one parting question, taking a big step back. Um, this is, you know, a kind of an in, intermission conversation, right? We're, we're in the middle of the term. We're previewing some of these issues. What's one thing that each of you think court watchers should most watch out for this term? Well, I mean, one thing we saw last term, uh, which was, as I mentioned, the first term where we had these nine justices, although they weren't there for the full term, was some unusual or unexpected lineups in five, four decisions. And so uh, where you had Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch, um, what some would say is crossing over to vote with the four more liberal justices. And I think there's some opportunity for that to happen again this year. And, you know, I think we're still sort of gathering data points on the views of those two justices. And so I would say watch out for that. I agree with that. The other thing I would wonder about, and I'll be really interested to see, is the court has so many hot button issues this term. So many. Will it step back from some of them? Will it try to find off ramps to avoid deciding some of these questions? Or will it just plunge ahead and say, we're going to deal with DACA, with abortion, with the Title VII questions, with the structure of the administrative state, and this thing, and that thing, and the next? Um, you know, as we get towards June, will they kind of want to, as you suggested, avoid the suggestion that they're that deep into politics, or is it just going to be, you know, this is their opportunity to resolve these questions? I'll be when you have this new dynamic of the justices, it's a real, real, real puzzle. One remaining question from one of our listeners, Tom, what are you drinking? <laughs> well, I'm going to say it's Red Bull, but it's definitely not whiskey. Okay, that's good. It's a little early in the day for that. Um, yeah. It was truly a pleasure and an honor to host this conversation. Uh, luckily, this is only part one of uh, two parts, uh, and we'll be speaking again soon. Um, we'll circulate this recording uh, of the session by email. We'll also follow up by email um, with updates about CLE credit. CLE credit is pending in all 50 states for both of these sessions. And obviously, as I'm sure you can imagine, we'll be talking about uh, different cases, um, probably a few updates to a few of these cases after we hear our oral argument um, in the February 20th session. Um, then we'll be speaking with Tom again, and this time with Kevin Russell, his partner at Goldstein and Russell. Sorry, Sarah. Um, we're very excited to speak with you this time. Um, as, as one parting note, um, just to share with our viewers, my company, Case Text, is very thrilled to partner with SCOTUS Blog. Um, if you're not familiar with case text, we provide free access to cases, statutes, regulations, rules, and other legal materials to lawyers and the public, along with advanced legal research technology to over 5,000 law firms, including some of the country's most accomplished litigators. We are on the precipice of announcing some very exciting technology that will change how many lawyers draft motions to the court. So this is a very good time to follow us on Twitter, remember we're at case text, um, or get on our mailing list uh, to learn more about uh, case text, uh, please contact my team at contact at casetext.com uh, or simply go to casetext.com to learn more. Uh, thank you to all of you for your time and have a wonderful day. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.